Let me invite you to turn to Matthew 23 again. You should be getting to the point where your Bible's just open to Matthew 23. We we will be done two more two more Sundays, and we'll be done with Matthew 23. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, as it unfolds for us, uh, we we see a lot of wonderful things. There are two things that we see, two truths that we see displayed over and over again. Sometimes directly by teaching, and and often simply by the circumstances that unfold. The first of those is that God is holy and that he judges all men and women by the standard of his holiness. Jesus says at the end of Matthew 5, be you perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. The second truth that we see illustrated is that men and women are sinners and that they can't change their own nature. And we see that reflected in our own lives. Every time Jesus gives a, pos- a positive moral teaching, our hearts should at least sink a little because we know that we can't meet that standard. Jesus says, don't just love those who love you back. Pray for those who hate you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. And we hear that as a positive teaching, but our hearts fail a little bit. Because we can't do that. Not perfectly. And every time we hear Jesus pronouncing judgment, as we have been hearing now for almost two months in Matthew 23, we should feel, uh, how could I put it? I I suppose we we should feel the, the breeze of that arrow miss us. We should feel like we've dodged a bullet. We should feel not to use a trite expression, but truly, but for the grace of God, there go I. And feel the closeness of the judgment that we were under before the Lord had mercy on us. As as we've seen these woes unfold, nobody should have heard these. Nobody listening to Jesus that day and nobody today should say, I'm glad I'm not a scribe or a Pharisee. Because he meant anybody who was like this. That day and and today. As I've been careful to point out each week, Jesus in this chapter doesn't give us positive alternatives to what he said. Now, in Matthew 6, if you recall Matthew 6, he opens up talking about giving. When you give, don't be like them. Instead, do this. And then he says, when you pray, don't be like them. Instead, do this. And when you fast, don't do what they do. Instead, do this. So he, he gives the negative and then he gives the positive. And he hasn't done that. So I've gone through and, and done what I could do to reveal what the positive would be, what the alternative would be. I come to a pair of verses today. I come to a woe today where there's no positive thing for us to do. Because Jesus in these verses deals with the deadness of those who are dead in sin. And there's nothing that we could do to change that about ourselves. We are as helpless as anyone else and have received mercy. And so Jesus says in verses 27 and 28, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, 
which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. In this way, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So here's our plan this morning. I'm going to take a a couple of minutes and talk about this figure of speech, this whitewashed tomb and what Jesus meant there. And we'll see that he's talking about spiritual death. And then I'll talk about what it means to be spiritually dead. This is not the kind of sermon I want to stand up and deliver. But this is true, and in order to understand the truth, we have to see all of it. And then third, we're going to consider how God has answered our spiritual death by his loving kindness, by his everlasting love. That, that's why the title of the sermon is Loved with an Everlasting Love. That's not going to come. I just give you a fair warning. We're not going to reach that point until the, toward the end of the message because we have to lay the proper ground for it. Father, we, we come as those who are in need of hearing your word as those who feed on it. We, we come as those who long to know you, long to know your word. And so I ask, Father, this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to listen to all of it. To not close our hearts because there's something painful in the middle, but to hear you all the way through. Would you do that for us this morning, for Jesus' name and Jesus' sake? Thank you for it, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Numbers 19.16 says, uh, Moses instructing the people says, Anyone who in the open field touches one who has been slain with a sword or who has died naturally or a human bone or a grave shall be unclean for seven days. So it's not a moral fault. There's not a sin involved. There's no way to cut this seven days short. There's no way to say, uh, I, I had to. I, I touched a, a dead body. I stepped on a grave, and so I need to go offer a sacrifice, and then I'm okay. You're simply unclean for seven days. This was not an unusual thing. In the ancient world, and in the and in the world of Jesus, when somebody died, it was typically the women in the household, sisters, mom, grandmother, aunts, who prepared the deceased for burial and it was the men of the household who then took that body and placed it in the tomb when somebody passed away in your home you became unclean nobody's at fault nobody's hated because of this it's simply describing their ritual state before the lord probably because nothing depicts sin like death And to come in contact with sin is to come in contact with the the very root of human trouble and rebellion. 
Well, here's the situation. Jesus is speaking on this day in the middle of Passion Week. It's Wednesday of Passion Week. The next night, he's going to celebrate the Last Supper with his disciples. He'll go out in the garden to pray. He'll pray through the night. He will be arrested in the early morning hours and then be crucified on Friday. His crucifixion is already less than 48 hours away. He's coming to the end. But it's Passover. Hundreds of thousands have streamed into Jerusalem for the feast. They had to attend three feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Listen to me long enough, you'll just be able to say it with me. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Every man had to go. Most of the time they brought their families. There was no room for them to stay in the city, not hundreds of thousands. Josephus, a Jewish historian at the end of the first century, estimated that that the population of, of Jerusalem swelled to a million at Passover and Pentecost and Tabernacles. It grew by a factor of 10. There's no room. And so people surrounded or people camped in the surrounding countryside. Archaeologists have discovered more than 800 tombs within a three-mile radius of Jerusalem. You simply could not go off of a road very far without the risk of running into a tomb without seeing a grave. So when you've got hundreds of thousands of people coming in and camping in the countryside who are then going to come to the temple to sacrifice and worship and pray, how do you protect them so that they don't become ritually undefiled that week? You whitewash the tombs. You paint them white. You wait till the spring rains are over because whitewash is not latex or acrylic paint. It's it's lye and ash, and it will, it'll wash off. You wait till the spring rains are over, and then in the weeks before Passover, you paint these tombs brilliant white. People see them standing out, especially in, in, at, at Passover. At Passover, Israel was still largely green. And so you can just imagine coming through the hills, coming through the Judean hills. It's, it's, a, it's a deserty area. It's a dry area, but you've had the rains. Now all of, here's all of this green, and here's these brilliant white objects out there. Beautiful. In fact, the Kidron Valley, which stands on the east side of the Temple Mount, west of the, the Mount of Olives, you, you've got the Temple Mount to the west and then the Kidron Valley running north-south and then the, the, the Mount of Olives. If you look on a satellite picture today, toward the southern end of the Kidron Valley, kind of across from the bottom of, of the Temple Mount, you'll see what looks like from the air, what just looks like boxes. They look like beehives. They're not beehives, they're tombs. In the Kidron Valley, there are some pretty spectacular monuments. See, some people, they didn't just bury their dead, they built monuments to them. So at the time of Jesus, there was a, a, the tomb of the sons of Hazir, who was a, it was a priestly family. They were also building a tomb to Absalom, the tomb of Absalom, rather, and the tomb of Zechariah, which had nothing to do with the son of David, Absalom, had nothing to do with the prophet of Zechariah. They were just named that. But they weren't just tombs. They were monuments. The, the tomb of Zechariah, if I'm remembering correctly, had, uh, had a kind of a box and a spire on it. And the tomb of Absalom had columns. 
So now we're past beware of this, be watch out as you're coming by, this is a grave, don't touch it to look, there's a tourist attraction. It's beautiful, let's go see. In fact, Jesus says in the next, well, we'll see it next week. He says to the Pharisees in verse 29, you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. They're doing that. They were building those as he was alive. Here's the problem. That whitewashed tomb is full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. We know it's in a grave. We know it's in a tomb. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to open them up. We don't want to see. We don't want to see. And Jesus says to these men, you are like whitewashed tombs, full of dead men's bones, and all uncleanness. On the outside you appear righteous, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus alone knew what was on the inside of these men. He knew all things about all people, John chapter 2. Nobody needed to tell Jesus about people because he knew what was in them. If I can put it this way, meaning no disrespect to the Lord at all or, or his resurrection, it's as though Jesus could roll away the stone of your heart and see inside that tomb. And it wasn't, it wasn't, nice inside what Jesus is describing is spiritual death what does it mean to be spiritually dead foundationally it means to be permanently severed from the life of God God made Adam from the dust of the ground and he breathed into him the breath of life when he made Eve there's no record that he breathed into Eve the breath of life it wasn't necessary she had it from Adam God told Adam in the garden, if you sin, you will die. Adam sinned and Adam died, and all who were in Adam, including Eve, died. We are so oriented to, phys to the physical world that for us, death is physical death. That's what we see. It's what we notice. It's, it's what we fear. It's what we try to avoid. It's what brings so much grief and so much sorrow. It took Adam more than 900 years to die. He ate and he began slowly dying. But the minute Adam ate, he died spiritually. In the twinkling of an eye. Solomon in Ecclesiastes at the end of the book describes death. He gives several pictures of death. And one of those pictures is the snapping of the silver cord. Spiritual death happens in an instant. Adam died spiritually in an instant. He was severed from the life of God in an instant. He had only known the life of God. Eve had only known the life of God. And then Adam ate and that life was gone and the only thing that remained was this chasm this huge void filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness filled with guilt and rebellion as I was pondering that this this week I, I thought of magnets 
Magnetic magnets are oriented north and south. They have a north pole and a south pole. And that's probably because if you take a bar magnet and you suspend it from a string, and you just let it hang, the north end of the magnet will orient to the Earth's magnetic north. That's why we can use magnets on a compass. Well, God is north, Adam is south. Yahweh is creator, Adam is the creature. Creature, Yahweh is the potter, Adam is the vessel. Yahweh is the giver of life, Adam is the recipient of life. Yahweh is the law giver, Adam is the law keeper. As, as long as Adam remained properly oriented to God, there was a positive attraction like a magnet. We played with magnets as kids. Push them around. You watch them snap together. When I, when I do cutting on my laser, I have a, a steel honeycomb that holds up whatever I'm cutting. And I use rare earth magnets, little discs, to hold, that, to hold the piece of work down. The laser doesn't physically, well, light touches it. Nothing is going to move it, but just to hold it and keep it in place. And when I first got those rare earth magnets, they come with these plastic discs between them. And I reach and I pull two of them apart, and I wasn't holding it carefully, and one snapped to the other, and it actually clipped off a little bit of skin. It was so strong. It hit hard. I've let them go too close to each other, and they've broken. They're metal, but they'll snap because they hit with so much force. There was such an incredible, powerful act of attraction from Adam to God because he had the life of God within him. But then when he sinned and he died spiritually and he was severed from the life of God, suddenly he, he flipped and now God actively repelled him. God actively repelled him. We see it in Genesis 3.8. They heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves. They were repelled. They were pushed away. They didn't just apathetically sit there. With God walking up and them saying, oh, hi. They were repelled. They feared him. They actively avoided him. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. The results of spiritual death, then we see around us and we see it in scripture. People are born hostile to God and his word. We have no love for him. I, I saw a tweet this week from a pastor who said his two-year-old, they're all sitting there in the living room, his two-year-old just turned to the three-year-old and just slapped her in the face as hard as she could and then turned very calmly to daddy and said, she hit me. See, we're born hostile to God. We're born sinners. Those who are spiritually dead can't understand spiritual things. These references, by the way, are in the sermon notes. They can't understand spiritual things because their thinking is futile and their minds are ignorant and their hearts are hard. The spiritually dead cannot help but suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They have a magnetic repulsion to it. They're so convinced of their own invincible wisdom that they worship anything except God. And then tragically, they're blind to the hope of the gospel. And the glory of Jesus Christ, the, the sweet precious message of the gospel smells like death to them. Sickening and vile. 
they hate the central truth of the gospel that the cross of Christ leads to salvation. If you could physically depict what separates God from man as a wall that's stretched from side to side and top to bottom of the universe. And in that wall, there was one door to God, a gate, a narrow gate. It would be cross-shaped. And the hatred of sinners is such that even though they're told, if you'll walk through that gate, you'll be welcomed and adopted. They would rather try to break through, dig under, climb under, go around, or just pretend the wall doesn't exist. That's what it means to be spiritual dead, spiritually dead. That's why apart from the intervening work of the Spirit of God, we can't understand the state of our own hearts. That's why apart from the Spirit of God, we can't comprehend our need for the gospel. And it's why apart from the Spirit of God, evangelism fails every single time. Every single time. Those who are spiritually dead are not just unwilling to please God, they're unable to please God. It's not that they don't respond to the gospel, but that they respond negatively. They respond by pushing back. They respond north pole to north pole of a magnet. They're simply unable to answer in a way that would bring them life. One of the most tragic funerals I've ever conducted was for a young, young man. Um, it, it was early in my ministry when we were in California. He didn't go to our church. I was referred to the family by the funeral home. He was in his early 20s, had been married just a few months. His wife uh, got up early one morning to go run, and she leaned over to kiss him goodbye, and he was gone. He was cold. She found out that he had a congenital heart defect. He knew, and his parents knew, but she didn't know. And they estimated that he'd probably died just after they went to bed the night before. I came in to, to do the service. I did the chapel service and then the graveside service. Uh, his father had been a, uh, a, a, key in, a key individual in NASCAR, not as a racer, but somehow. So uh, quite a few... NASCAR people like A.J. Foyt and, and people like that, racers were there, huge crowd. And I finished the, the chapel service, and she began to shriek and howl and threw herself on the casket and begged him to come back. It was shattering. It's, it's one of the things I wish I could unsee. It's horrible. But, of course, he couldn't. That's the spiritually dead when it comes to the gospel. You can plead with them, you can beg them, but they can't. There has to be a work of God. Paul writes, we preach Christ crucified, which to us is this precious truth. But to the religious to Jews and other people who are satisfied with their own religion, it's a stumbling block. The very thing that gives life is what keeps them from coming. And to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, to those who are proud of their own wisdom and philosophy 
It's foolishness. It's idiocy. It's stupid. It's just ridiculous. We see more of the latter in our time. We see far more abuse and mockery in our culture than we do offense. But you know people who are offended, who are religious people. They're good. They're good people. They're nice people. And, and they'll, say th- they'll say things like, everybody makes mistakes. Nobody's perfect. To err is human. And if you say, yes, that's true, everybody makes mistakes. Nobody's perfect. To err is human. So come to Jesus and admit your sins and be saved. They get angry. They don't say, oh, good. I can be forgiven and I can be cleansed and my heart can be light and my guilt can be taken away. They get bitterly angry, angry, verbally angry. Why? Because it's not just that everybody makes mistakes. It's that they're hostile to God. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The cross of Jesus Christ is the love of God writ large across the face of the universe for all creation to see. Those who are offended by the gospel are offended by the love of God. Those who who ridicule the gospel ridicule the love of God. I saw a posting on Twitter this week. Somebody had posted, why would a loving God send anyone to hell? And the perfect response, I wish I'd thought of it. The perfect response, why would anybody choose hell over a loving God? And it's because they're dead. And it's so frustrating. So this is the point in the sermon where I'm low. And in my heart and in my mind, I say, why bother preaching the gospel? And there's three reasons. We've got to keep pressing through. You've got to stay with me because at the end of this, the third reason is the loving kindness of God, but you've got to stick with it. The first is we're commanded to preach. We're commanded to preach. Not one of us is Jeremiah. Not one of us was told by God in our youth, I'm sending you for a lifetime of ministry and not one person is going to listen to you ever. (sighs) Ever. Jesus' final earthly instructions to his disciples were to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Heard in Acts chapter 10 this morning as I read, Peter says he has commanded us to preach. Why do we preach? Because we've been commanded to preach. That's the first reason. Second, we preach Christ crucified because it proves that God's justice is justified. His judgment is right. Let me explain that. Track with me. The message of the gospel is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The message of the gospel is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Through the preaching of the gospel, God gives the world fair warning of what is to come. Full disclosure. Nobody will be able to stand before him and say, I had no idea. Nobody. For one thing, there's the human conscience. And beyond that, in much of the world over the last 2,000 years, and there's efforts constantly, praise God for that, so that unbelievers can hear the gospel. But not one person ever born 
will be able to stand before God in the day of judgment and say, I had no idea. Not one. If you'll take the time to read through the book of Acts, you'll see something that I realized this week. And I'll tell you what it is so you don't have to go wondering. And that is that the preaching in the book of Acts is more like Jonah's preaching in Nineveh than Billy Graham's preaching in our century or the last century. What do I mean by that? I mean Peter standing up before the the people in Acts chapter 2. And what's the big breaking point? When they cry out, brothers, what must we do? Why didn't they know? Why didn't Jesus begin with God loves you, or Peter begin with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Jesus died so you could be saved. Why didn't he begin with that? He didn't. He began with the law. He began with their guilt. He began with their spiritual death. And then, in fact, he goes on urging them to repent and believe the gospel. And it says with many other words, he pled with them. But he began with this teaching that laid out their guilt. Why did they put Stephen to death? They never let him get to Jesus died for you. He flooded them with their guilt going back to Moses. And he just painted it generation by generation until they were so outraged that they stoned him to death. Why didn't he start with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? He didn't. When Paul goes into Athens in Acts 17, he warns them that God is going to judge the world and has proven it by raising Jesus from the dead. But he never says, but there's hope for you. He warns them of the judgment to come. Paul stood before Felix and Drusilla, and he spoke to them about, and I'm quoting, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. He was not reasoning with them about Jesus' love and life. It was about their need. It was about their need. I've been thinking the last couple months that I've got dementia because I've been forgetting things. I've been missing words, and I've been dealing with increasing brain fog. Last Sunday, it was hard for me to track with my own manuscript. Linda and I talked. She wondered if it could be blood sugar, so I started tracking. Doggone if it's not blood sugar. And what I need to do is eat a few eggs in the morning, and, man, I'm, I don't feel that today. Well, why didn't I do that before? Because I was simply not aware of my need. So we we bring the gospel. We bring the news of the judgment of God because that's what Jesus saves from. And what are the, here's the gospel in a nutshell. A day of judgment is coming. God's wrath will be poured out on sinners, but he sent his son to die. And if you'll trust him, he'll save you. And what's the response to that? Offense or amusement? And therefore, God's judgment against them is vindicated. They're not just good people who made mistakes. They're enemies. There's hostility. They hate him. I cringe 
at this message. I spoke dozens of times, dozens of evenings at the Rescue Mission Chapel, always with a focus on the gospel, so always with evangelism in mind. And I stood there and sweated and cringed and had to force these words out. I don't know if you have that, brother, when you speak, but these are hard words. I love going to the jail, but every time I'm at the jail and every Thursday night when I have to deliver this, I just cringe inside. I feel like a police officer knocking on somebody's door in the middle of the night to tell them a loved one's been killed. I feel like a doctor looking somebody in the eye and saying, your cancer is terminal, there's nothing I can do. I cringe because I came within the width of God's grace of eternal hell myself. Part of it is because I hate to deliver bad news to other people. You wouldn't think it, maybe, but I do. And part of it is because I, I escaped that by what feels like to me to be such a thin margin, which is really not a thin margin at all. It's the infinitely large love of God. So we preach the gospel first because we are commanded to, and second because it reveals the justice of God. And, and here we go. We preach it because God has loved his people with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31.3. Yahweh appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. When Dakota read it this morning, he read, the loving kindness of God is continued. The word there is drawn. Not continued, drawn. I don't know why they translated it continued. I don't know how many of you would have something like that in your text, but the word is drawn. It's, it's the same word that's used in Genesis when Joseph was in the pit and they were going to sell him and they pulled him out of the pit. It's the word used in Jeremiah 38 when Jeremiah has been thrown in the cistern and they pull him out of the cistern. It's the word that's used when Ahab is on the battlefield and an archer shoots him and the archer draws the bow. God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love and therefore I have taken hold of you and I have pulled you to myself. Not put down a passive offer. I have taken hold of you. The hard, painful news of the judgment of God is more than balanced by the wonderful, precious, blessed news of the equally powerful, equally deliberate, and equally active loving kindness of God. And what a relief it is when you're sharing the gospel with somebody and they're beginning to understand the judgment that you can come to the grace of God. This is where we as Christians struggle. We all struggle to some degree with the loving kindness of God. He says, I have loved you, past tense. It's actually perfect tense. Perfect meaning it's fully accomplished and now it results in an eternal result. Not as in, I drank a glass of water yesterday, but as in, I married Linda, 
finished the verb, but now there's an ongoing result. I have loved you with an everlasting love, is what God says. So we were dead in our sins, guilty before God, richly deserving his justice and condemnation, powerless to do anything to resolve that for ourselves. But God the Father, who is full of loving kindness, sent God the Son, who is full of loving kindness, to take on human flesh, live a sinful life, die in the place of his people on the cross, and rise in victory over sin and death. And now God the Spirit, who is full of loving kindness causes the gospel to be effectively preached and heard. He softens the sinner's heart. He gives them faith. He takes away their sins. He imputes Christ's righteousness to them. He joins them with Jesus on the cross, putting their sinful flesh to death. And he joins them to Jesus and his resurrection, enlivening their their spiritual life. He grants them repentance and new obedience. He begins a process of sanctification that starts that minute and finishes with their last exhalation. And then full of loving kindness, he brings them to the Father and the Son in glory. And he will not let you go. Ever. If you've put your faith in him, he won't let you go. That's the gospel. The miracle of the gospel is not that you figured out the right words to say to that person. The miracle of the gospel is not that they managed to to change themselves. The miracle of the gospel is that God works through you, somebody who barely comprehends what he's done. To work in the life of somebody who doesn't comprehend what he's done. And then suddenly you see it take hold of them in a way that you could not make happen and they get it and their eyes are opened and they say oh that's me I'm loved and of course being still in the flesh and being still in the world with with an enemy and with bad teaching that happens all over the place, we sin and we struggle and we stumble, and then the devil or our own flesh or enemies come in and say, see, you're not a Christian. But the question of whether you're a Christian isn't proven by whether you continue to sin. It's what happens when you sin. And as you sin and you come to the Lord and say, I've done this, cleanse me. And you struggle through all of that. You prove his love is an everlasting love. Whatever you do, don't minimize his love for you by minimizing your hatred for him before he saved you. Don't say, well, at least I never did that. Say with Paul, I'm the worst of sinners. Say with Paul, wretched one that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And give him glory. Your peace with him is not based on you. Your peace with him is from him. Your peace with him is rooted in his promise that he will never leave you or forsake you. Your peace with him is not rooted in your circumstances. Your peace with him is rooted in his holy character and nature and love. 
Father, it's hard to know how to even respond. Some of us have known you for decades. Some of us have known you through intense pain and suffering and difficulty. And we know our own weakness. And it's all too easy for us to assume that you suffer from the same weakness, that you suffer from the same doubts. When Jesus died, he didn't die for some sins. He died for all, once for all. And when you loved us, it was not for a moment. It was not as long as the relationship is good and satisfying and interesting. You have loved us with an everlasting love. We have barely known you for the twinkling of an eye, and you have already loved us for all eternity. I ask that you would forgive our doubts and our questions and our uncertainties. And so fill us, Lord, with the marvel of your love and with an honest appraisal of our own inability that we're able to take the gospel to others. And even though we cringe when we do it, tell them the truth of their condition. knowing that if you don't work, they will either be offended or amused by the gospel. But that if you work in that moment, we will see a miracle. We will see offense or amusement replaced with wonder. And genuine faith. We thank you for your love for us and praise you for it, Lord, in Jesus' precious name.